morning, everybody. Thanks for joining us.
right, go ahead and have a seat if you like. Um, I don't know if Matt, is Matt doing announcements? You doing announcements? No, okay, all right. Um, Matt's had a pretty rough week. He passed a kidney stone. Um, so, you know, it's a little bumpy, uh, so to speak. Uh, so I'm glad you're doing better, Matt. Um, but I do have a few announcements. Two of them kind of involve kids. Uh, so uh, just pay attention to the screen for a second if you don't mind. Uh, by the way, welcome everybody. I'm so glad you're here today. And hopefully you're enjoying the beautiful sunshine we've been having. Uh, so let's, uh, let's just jump right into it. On October 2nd, in just a few short weeks, we're going to be having our fall festival. Uh, just another fellowship gathering that we're doing this fall to try to engage everybody, re-engage everybody if possible, and, uh, and, and just share our fellowship that we've enjoyed uh, pre-COVID. Uh, secondly, the Joy Club, uh, they, had bumped, they had moved the date back just a little bit, uh, but they're going to be gathering on October 6th. Joy Club originally meant uh, Jesus others, just, oh, okay, I stand corrected, I thought it was Jesus, others, and you, it's just older youth, okay, my bad, um, so they're going to be gathering, and basically, uh, it's anyone that uh, wants to gather, usually on a monthly basis, uh, with, um, generally, it's, it's people that are retired, or people that are, are just tired, or people that just want to have fun, uh, basically anybody's welcome. Uh, so there's the details right there. This, this week, uh, JT, or this go-around, JT Panzot's going to be there from the Salem Police Department. Um, uh, our kids are going to um, uh, be going to Rolling Acres Corn Maze. Um, if you've never been there, um, we've a lot of our people have gone. Some of them have made it through. Some are still wandering around in the corn maze. Um, may or may not happen. Chances are it won't, so I wouldn't worry. Uh, so there's the details there. Uh, and then um, we will be doing a trail of treats at the, at the park again this year, which was a lot of fun last year, even though it was a little bit on the rainy side. We had a great time. Um, uh, students in grades 6 through 12, are invited to our youth group, which um, that's starting to get kicked off here. And uh, just love to have all of our kids uh, regather and uh, enjoy the fellowship of being with one another. Uh, so if you know any kids in that category, uh, send them our way, okay? So uh, with that said, let's move on into our prayer time. Is there anything that you've brought into this room that is a burden that you want to uh, want us to come alongside with and help to lift up before the Lord? Anybody have anything that they, they need to, okay? Oh, good, good. Well, we'll keep your, um, your son lifted up, Marie, just because, you know, it's been a long, long journey. Um, so uh, praise the Lord for, prop, for, for little wins. Yeah. Okay, so uh, what's your, your daughter-in-law's name? Lisa Rain. Lisa Rain, okay. Rail. Rail, okay. Uh, so pray for Lisa Rail for um, kidney transplant? Liver. Liver. Okay, I've got Matt's, I, I'm sorry, I've been thinking about Matt, Matt's kidney all week. Uh, <laughs> liver, okay. Anyone else? All right. Yeah, so Rich and Sarah both, and Jonathan, of course, uh, heading back um, to Tanzania um, on the 28th. Okay, so pray that uh, they got a clear, clear road ahead, and they and they um, uh, test negative for COVID. So good. Okay, Melissa. Okay. 
Okay, we'll keep uh, Coleman lifted up in this, in this process of trying to find healing with the seizures. Emily? Oh, well, congratulations. Happy birthday to those guys. Yeah, that's kind of neat. Makes it easy to remember, doesn't it? Yeah. Okay. Kathy? Okay. Your friend Alice Whitman, open heart surgery, and she's in critical condition right now, so pray for Alice. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and just take all of these things before the Lord, can we? Our Father, as we gather in this room and we bow before your throne in a spirit of surrender and dependence, always trusting that you are faithful, knowing that your intentions and your motives by design are centered in your love towards us and that posture of love is reflected not only in your faithfulness, but in those times where we um, are recognizing our limitations and our dependencies. Father, we just ask that um, you would be the great physician that we need in some cases and in other cases. Uh, you would just be that source of strengthening and healing. I, I pray, Father, that you would be with um, the request that we've lifted before your throne, I thank you for being with um, Matt Cotler and helping him with all that he's gone through this week. And just pray, Father, not only for him, but for Coleman, as he um, hopefully one day will find a, a means to move past having seizures and all that that means uh, for the disruptive effect that it has on his life, that there would be a day where there'd be total and complete healing. I pray for uh, Lisa Rail and just the struggle she's going through. I pray that you would uh, find that donor for her liver, and I just ask that you just bless her in that process. I pray, Father, for Rich and for Sarah and for Jonathan as they prepare to return, that your grace would uh, just open the way for them to re-engage with the, the mission that they've um, been separated from. Uh, at least physically for so long. And I just pray for all the supporters that have come alongside them to um, just recognize the challenges that um, they face in ways that perhaps we don't fully understand. We are so grateful for the role that they play in allowing your word to spread through Bible translation and through the role that they play in supporting the missionaries that go out administratively. I pray, Father, for Alice, who's struggling with recovery from her open-heart surgery. I just pray that you bless her, and I pray that you heal her. I pray, Father, that um, you would be with Marie's son as he recovers from uh, just lots and lots of um, uh, procedures and treatments uh, involving his cancer. We just pray for a total and complete healing for him as well. Father, we thank you for this day, for all of the seasons of life, for the sunshine that affects our spirits so positively. But ultimately, Father, it is you as our source of everything that is good and everything um, that, that, that is worthy of our attention, uh, that brings us joy no matter what, that gives us hope regardless of all the competing signals that say otherwise that helps us to know that deeper love uh, that is just fundamental to your whole being. So, Father, we are a needy people. We're a broken people. We're a wayward people. And as we gather for worship, we hope that the effects of our gathering will not only bring you praise and glory, but in turn will remake us into the image and likeness of Christ. And as we make that appeal, Lord, help us to pray with intentionality our Lord's Prayer. Would you pray with me now? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our debts 
as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. All right, well, um, if you've been hanging with us for a few weeks, and, and that includes you guys online, welcome uh, as well. Um, and hopefully, whether we're gathered in spirit or in, in physical presence, we've been tracking with uh, the storyline in the book of Luke, uh, chapter 10, on the Good Samaritan. And we're going to be talking uh, just one more week, and that is, of course, this week, about uh, what it takes to be a good neighbor as we explore that story. And we've been exploring it, and perhaps you've heard of the Good Samaritan and all that that means. And if you have, um, that's great. And if not, um, there's a Bible in, in the pew in front of you. You can take a quick look. Uh, we're looking at uh, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. I'm not going to spend a lot of time there today because this is really about taking a, a message series and then hopefully giving it some feet. Um, so what I'd like to do is I'd like to, first of all, start off with our interactive handout. I don't know if you guys got this or not, but I've gamified it a little bit. I did this three weeks ago before I decided to extend this out a little bit. Um, so I've got the, uh, I've got the slides uh, for the handouts in a different order. So you have to pay attention. When you see them, that's when you fill them out. And they could be at the bottom when I mention it first, or it could be in the middle, or whatever the case may be. And to gamify it even farther, I thought, you know what, to see if you're really paying attention, um, there is a phrase in this that's not a slide. I'm going to repeat it twice. And if you're paying attention, you'll know what that phrase is. Okay, you got it? Okay, that's how we're playing today. And it's not fair, but life isn't fair. However, God is just, and he is faithful, and he is loving, and that's why we're here. So let's just jump right into it, because we are looking for the third week at the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I want to help us as a church take this parable and think about all the ways that we can embody what this parable is supposed to mean uh, whether it's um, uh, loving our neighbors or self, or whether it is um, exploring how we do that together in ways that um, um, are challenging. And last week, whenever we explored this together, that challenging way was really on how we love our enemies. And we looked at the Old Testament, and we asked the question, what is going on there when you trace the storyline of the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah, which broke up after King Solomon passed away, and they went in different directions, and then ultimately these two factions of the 12 tribes that are supposed to be together in this whole project of getting the good news out through, 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 through the message of the coming Messiah, Jesus. If you're with me so far, um, these guys aren't playing fair. They're not getting along well. And uh, Jesus is right in the middle of this hatred as he is moving from the top of, of the map of the Holy Land, the region of Galilee, through Samaria, which is where the enemies are, all the way down to Judea, where the, the, the city of Jerusalem is, and ultimately he's going to meet his destiny and his fate on a cross. Along the way, he has to travel through Samaria. And Samaria, as you know, is kind of like a four-letter word in the minds of the Jewish people. They are, are they, they've cataloged all of the moments in time where there has been animosity between those two regions. And I want to explore something today that is in the backstory, the Old Testament, of the telling of the parable of the Good Samaritan, and I think you're going to find this really interesting because the, the Samaritan who actually was the enemy of God's people, the priest and the Levite, did something unthinkable, and that is he helped a Jew who was in distress. And looking at his, his, his episode of the actual carrying out of that role of loving his enemies, 
he had three capacities that I, I want us to ponder as we move into this for neighboring well. His eyes, as he's walking along the trail, what did he see? An enemy. And that enemy was somebody that he could have categorically written off, but he didn't. And then your ears, what did he hear? He heard the distress and probably the groanings of somebody that had been beaten by robbers. And then finally, as you look at the posture of his heart towards the mortal enemies of his people, the question is, what is he going to do with what he sees and what he hears? And if you were to fast forward this message all the way to the ending, the application point would be, what do I see going on around me? What do I hear that God is saying, are you hearing that? Are you seeing that? And then God's also asking us, where is your heart relative to that need that I've placed right in front of you? Okay? So as, as God is trying to take this story for First Christian Church, he has to remind us of a little bit of a history lesson because the story actually happened even before Jesus um, told it. It was a story that was embedded in the scriptural text all the way back in 2 Chronicles 28. 2 Chronicles 28, we have um, a situation happening where there, there's a divided kingdom after King Solomon had this beautiful, wonderfully well-administered kingdom after he died, his two sons took over, and they divided up the land. One was Jer uh, uh, Jeroboam, and one was Rehoboam. One went to the north, to Israel, and one went to the south, to Judah. And if you look on a map, it would look something like this. There was a season in the scripture where um, Samaria was actually Israel. Now it's just Samaria. And Judah, of course, is where Jerusalem is, all right? Two rival peoples after the, king, after the kingdom broke up. And what's interesting about the story that we're getting ready to look at is there was a king in Judah called King um, uh, uh, Ahaz who was um, basically being so defiant and so disobedient to God that he was worshiping other gods to the point of sacrificing his own children to them, which was absolutely abhorrent to the mind of God. And he had to help this king come correct. And up to the north, there were a couple of kingdoms, and one of them was um, um, led by a, a king named Pekka and uh, Rezin. And they were instructed by God to go down and to decimate the nation of Judah to kind of get their attention that the ways that they are directing their lives are not in accordance with God's purposes. And it's, it's, it's kind of like, you know, when you tell your kids not to do something and they go ahead and do it anyway and you tell them not to do it again and they do it anyway and they look defiant. And then you've got to, you know, you've got to bring out, you know, whatever means of punishment that will inflict a little bit of pain just to get their attention. Well, God has tried that over and over with these guys, and they're just not, not listening and not having it. So the king is so openly rebellious that God instructs the people at the north to go down and, and, and basically uh, take over. In the process, I believe over 200,000 uh, members of the, tri of, of, the, of the nation of Judah uh, died, and there was... Um, I, can't, I think the number is somewhere around 150,000 were taken captive and brought to the northern kingdom of Samaria. And so they settled in that area. And God is looking at this and he's saying, this is not what I want, but because they're driving this vehicle clear off the road and into the ditch, it's what I have to do. 
but his goal was to try to restore them ultimately. And something interesting happened along the story of these two groups of people being enemies. And we find that in 2 Chronicles 28, verse 15. We read something that I think is worth paying attention to. It says, the men designated by name took the prisoners from the plunder and they clothed all who were naked. They provided them with clothes and sandals, food and drink and healing balm. All those who were weak, they put on donkeys. So they took them back to the fellow Israelites at Jericho, the city of Palms, and returned to Samaria. Now, if you've read Luke chapter 10, the story of the Good Samaritan, are there any words that have popped up here that are familiar? Such as a man who was beaten to the point of nakedness. How about a person who saw him and took him in and gave him the, the healing um, resources that he needs, oils and, and wines that enabled him to recover? And then there is the donkey that was used to cart the man to, um, to the place where he could recover. And, of course, this happens around the city of Jericho in the region of Samaria. But what's so fascinating about the story is that um, it, it, it tells us that what Jesus was sharing in this parable is nothing new. There is just a precedent of people responding to their enemies in a godly way that is God-honoring, that is so valuable to remember that it's recorded in Scripture as a way of reminding us that this is our better humanity at work. And in this case, there's tension in the air because these people are actually mortal enemies, and yet they see fit to do all of these acts of mercy that otherwise they are undeserving. And what I like about that is because the parable of the Good Samaritan, I think Jesus has in the back of his mind a number of stories, and this is one of them. And, you know, we look at the Old Testament, and sometimes we think, oh, it's very harsh, and it's filled with lots of judgment and lots of war and lots of things that have to do with uh, people killing one another. But the reality is there is embedded in all of that barbarism and all of that uh, self-interest that is playing itself out on the, on, the, on the landscape of these nations. There are people who are in tune with God's heart who respond to the circumstances not with an eye for an eye or you did this so I'm going to do that, but rather in their own heart, in their own better way of being made in God's image, they recognize something about their enemy that they see in themselves. And what I find is God is, 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 of course, showing us that in a variety of places, and it comes to the surface in the telling of this story when the lawyer asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know, do you know the law? And, and, and he boils it down to uh, two commandments that we read uh, from Scripture in Deuteronomy 6, 5, love God with all your heart, and Leviticus 19, 18, and love your neighbor. But then the question is even further like, okay, I got to refine this. Who is my neighbor? And um, Jesus says, you know, this is so important that all the law and the prophets hang on this, this statement. But the question is, who is my neighbor? And what does it take for me to love my neighbor? While the lawyer's trying to parse out what the meaning of the word neighbor is, looking back to Leviticus 19 for just a second, it reads oftentimes, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
And I certainly get that because, you know, when we read the Beatitudes, it says, love your neighbors yourself. And pastors have preached, and I've even preached uh, in this way. There, there's a healthy way to love yourself. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's waking up every day, regardless of what other people are saying about you. It could be good, could be bad, could be ugly. They could overinflate their opinion of you, or they could diminish you and say, you know, you're a loser, or they could bully you, or they could do a number of things, and you look at yourself and you say, by the, by the opinion of the public, I guess I'm that person. But what God says is, by my standard, you are made in my image, and you are worthy of my love. And that certainly is true in Scripture. But it's also fair to read the statement in Leviticus this way. And you shall love your neighbor who is like yourself. And, and some translations actually incorporate their reading in that manner. And the reason why this is important is because um, he wants... God, through, throughout Scripture, wants us to recognize <clears throat> that we may define ourselves in a lot of categories. Well, I'm middle class. Well, I'm Democrat. I'm Republican. I'm a person from Ohio versus California or whatever your differentiating category is. But what God wants us to realize is at the very bottom of who we are, and I've told my kids this from, from a er very early age, even before I would say, I would ask you a question, who are you? Well, and I've, I've looked at them and I said, who are you? And obviously they're their mother's child, but um, that's usually when they're acting up. It's whenever they're not acting up that I say, who are you? And they're doing well. And I'm like, yeah, you're, you're from me. Uh, but that's not what we're talking about. Who are you? And I tell them, you are made in God's image at the very core of your being. And that should change everything about how you look at other people. Because like it or not, our world is very good, isn't it, of dividing people up into categories and subdividing them to the point where um, I, I can get into a conversation with somebody as lovable as Susie. And somewhere along the way, we're going to have a difference. We're not going to be the same. And we could use that as a point of contention. We could use that as a defining way of saying, I'm with her or I'm in another group. But at the end of the day, God says we are made in his image and his likeness. And as he calls us to love our neighbor, he wants us to keep that clearly in mind. Because I am like my neighbor. And, and, and perhaps you've met your next door neighbor or somebody that is close to your proximity in your neighborhood, and maybe they moved in from another part of the country, which I've actually had that happen, and I got into a conversation with them, and turns out that unrelated to this area, we knew somebody, uh, we, we had a, a shared mutual um, uh, friendship, well, kind of acquaintance, and as we got to talking about where they were at in life and where we were at in life, it was like, wow, they're a lot like us. And God is saying, yeah, at an even deeper level, they are more like you than you know. And yet, all the signals that we get from our culture are you should only love people like yourself, and you should use the Internet and social media and any other means gossip, whatever you can find, to vilify those people that aren't you, aren't like you. And God's saying, not, not so much. No, because they're actually a flawed human being like you, yet made in my image and my likeness. And I love that because it's, it's found in the Old Testament, it's found in the story that we have to find our common humanity and Jesus came to show us exactly that. This is about loving our neighbors 
and our enemies and realizing that they are our brothers and sisters. And sometimes we think, well, I'm going to love my neighbor because um, I'm a Christian. And perhaps we've thought, yeah, but you know what? My neighbor is so wicked and they're so godless and they're so turned off on the things of God. I'm not going to bother because there's no way they're even going to come around to know the Lord. And so we love our neighbor not because we're trying to make them Christians. I mean, certainly if through the relationship they can come to know Jesus as their Savior, that truly is the goal. But what drives us to love our neighbor is to show the love of Christ. And so we love our neighbor because we are Christian, not because we're trying to make them Christians. Ding, 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 ding. Next, there are two kinds of love when you look at this. There is transactional love, and that's the lawyer. And there is transformational love, and that's Jesus and company. The lawyer is trying to figure out who he can love and who he, who, who he doesn't have to love. And then he's asking the question even further, what must I do to get into heaven or get eternal life? And he's saying, if I do this, then God has to do this. And he's only looking at what he needs to trade God in order to have God's favor. But when Jesus comes on the scene, he's not saying, okay, we gotta, you got to find every relationship that you have, and you have to balance the scale, making sure that in every category of that relationship, they are giving you everything that you deserve, and you are giving them everything they deserve. And, you know, when I counsel people as a pastor for, for marriage counseling, I try to explain this to them because I hear and I'm, I, you know, I was there and you, you kind of have all of your stuff that you bring, like, you know, your motorcycle and your car and your record collection and, you know, some, if you're the guy, some not good furniture and you're like, I'm bringing all of this to you. And she's bringing stuff as well. And then you're doing the math and you're thinking, well, who's bringing more? And the reality is you can do it that way, but my guess is you will never settle that. And with God, you will never settle that either. And you get resentful, don't you, when you're giving more than the other person is offering. But not God and not Jesus. Because Jesus is about to give something that no one on the planet is able to even match. The kind of love that he's offering isn't, we'll do this stuff for you if you do this in return. Now, I've known good salesmen over the years, and you know some of them, the really good ones, they'll tell you, we're going to do this and this and this and this for you. And I'm like, great. And then all of a sudden... I'm thinking, where is it? Oh, and there it is. If you just sign on the bottom line. And you're like, I'll think about it. And then you call them later and say, no. And then they're like, click, the end. And that's how it is, isn't it? That's how human beings treat one another. When Jesus is not at the center of the relationship. When we're treating other people only for what we can get rather than for what we can give. And what Jesus is trying to create in you and I is not an attitude of getting, which is our consumer culture, but rather an attitude of asking God, what opportunity are you offering to me where I can give without expecting anything in return. And God will provide that opportunity. But what is the little known secret when he does is he almost always gives you joy for your faithfulness and your obedience. And he's saying, 
I don't want you to do this because you're going to get the joy out of it. I want you to do this because it's my heart at work through you. And the joy that you're feeling is that heart at work through you. And the lawyer does not wrap his mind around that because his whole way of looking at things is, what do I have to give to get? And in verse 29 of chapter 10, it says, but he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And in, and, and in verse 36, um, we know that as this unfolded in the parable, we read, which of these three, the priest, um, the scribe, or the Samaritan, was the neighbor? And that really is the question. Because the lawyer approached it in a way that didn't have God's interest in mind at all. Only just a lot of historical baggage, antagonisms, and how can I, how can I do the bare minimal requirements to get God's favor? I think sometimes we get into that place, don't we? Where we're just saying, what do I need to do to stay saved? Or what do I need to do to get saved? Or what do I need to do to get God off my back? Or what do I need to do to get forgiven? Those are all great questions, by the way. But those questions should actually lead, lead you to a place as you discover that God provides every one of those answers. He then begins to transform something inside of you where your questions become less and less selfish and more and more interested in doing what God wants to do in whatever particular situation he brings into your world, he nudges you towards. And so here's how you keep your motive in, in check. Would you be willing to love your neighbor if you knew they wouldn't ever give their life to God? Because God would. He would still love them. He can't help himself. The parable is not about identifying who is a neighbor. It's about whether or not we are a neighbor. And you either are or you're not. And as we've gone through this series, these are kind of the the, the, the takeaways that, that, that emerge out of it. Becoming a neighbor means I shift my focus from what I can get to what can I do. And it's based on empathy. That is, empathy is that ability to say, yeah, I've been, I've been there. I've gone through that. And some of you have gone through some pretty harrowing experiences whether it's cancer, a medical illness that is unique, but yet people in the area also have experienced. Perhaps it's a financial struggle that you work through and you see another person working through it and you can guide them along the way. Maybe it's just a challenge that you recognize that a person around you is facing. And you can say, I've been there, let me help you through this. And then you help them. And then you look at your neighbor and you say, that neighbor could never do anything good because they're just wicked, wicked, wicked. They don't have, all they have in their vocabulary are probably five words. And they're words I can't repeat in church. But God looks at that person and he says, they are made in my image and my likeness. And through my power and my love, that can come out. And then finally, find the common humanity. Now, the best way I can describe this is, when I was a kid, my parents took me camping all over central Illinois. And when we'd go to the campground, the first thing I would do after I was able to kind of leave the camper after we started to set it up, was I wanted to know where the playground was and I wanted to know where the kids were, and I wanted to know what was going on socially uh, with kids my age, and I wanted to be a part of it. 
And I met all kinds of kids there, some from the city, some from the country, African-American kids. Um, there were even a few Hispanic people at that time in that part of the country as well. Did I care? Not at all. Did not care. As long as they were willing to have fun and do the things that, that we're doing, I'm like, I'm good with that. Well, a funny thing happened on the way home from the campground. You started to learn about how you're different, how some people do well in sports and some people do well in, in, in academics, how some people don't do very well at all in a lot of things, and how some people carry around this sense of too much confidence and too much pride. And you start to kind of sort through where you fit and that sorting happens, starts happening in junior high. High school, it becomes pretty well defined. And then through the rest of our life, if God doesn't become a defining presence, we just recognize who we are in society, where we belong, how we fit. And what Jesus recognizes within that tendency is that a big part of bringing the kingdom to bear on his own people, both Samarians and Judeans, is that he has to dismantle all of that sorting, and he's got to start at the beginning. And he doesn't give a lecture on being made in God's image. Where he starts is by taking this parable into his own life and by a sheer act of selfless love offers himself unjustly on a bloodstained cross so that the takeaway for anybody who has ears to hear and eyes to see is that he did that for me because he knows deep down all of my struggles. He knows all of your struggles. And that blessing cross perpetually through time ever since has resonated with people all over the planet, including in this room, to such a high degree that it reminds us that this was the deepest act of love and compassion that one could ever offer, even to the point of losing his own life. Have you ever done something for somebody, and as you got into the process, you discovered this wasn't exactly what I signed up for? And then it starts to kind of go a little bit south. And then you're thinking, why did I ever do this? And maybe you've said to yourself, well, no good deed goes unpunished. And it's just the way it is when we pull ourselves or when we throw ourselves into other people's problems. And Jesus went right to the center of our deepest problems. And his good deed go, did go punished. But he did it anyway, knowing full well that that's what it was going to require. Because he looks at every person and he doesn't see them in any other mold except these are God's children, my father's children, made in his image. And my job is to help him to recover them back into his family. And one of the best ways to do that is by being the Good Samaritan for the people around you, recognizing their need, their dependence, their vulnerability, and in the most godly way possible, responding to that in a way that hopefully allows the love of God to flow through you. Finally, Verse 37, the expert in the law replied, who's the neighbor? The one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. He goes, people have done it in the past. People are doing it now in my name. And people will continue to do that because God's love is at work even in the worst of us.
God's love is the most excellent way. We read in 1 Corinthians 13, 1. It is the proof of Christ in us. It is the greatest. It is and was God's driving motives for everything. Maybe you've watched a football game or two and seen the John 3.16 banner. I remember asking my friend the question, what is John 3.16? And he said, well, uh, I went to church and I learned that it is the defining statement from the Bible. It's for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever would believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life because God is love. So here's the bottom line. Being a good neighbor doesn't mean meeting every need, but it does mean doing the thing that God is nudging you to do. And I believe the best place to end this is with a prayer. And I hope you can pray it alongside me as I pray it. And it's a prayer about this very thing. And so I'd just like for you to, 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 to bow your head, close your eyes, and if you're in agreement at the end, just say amen, because that's, 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 God's, that's, our, that's the Bible's way of saying, and let it be. So bow with me, if you would. Lord Jesus, we have gone through these past three weeks exploring a story that perhaps we've glossed over but now we've seen in greater detail what was going on. And alongside following the story, you've been asking each of us, what is going on in your heart right now? And for some of us, Lord, I just pray that there would be a moment of surrender to you as Lord and Savior, letting go of the stuff that we're attached to that defines us over and above being made in your image, over and above being a child of God through you, Lord Jesus. I just pray that everyone here would know that status of being a child, recognizing that through the bloodstained cross, we are forgiven and we are redeemed. And I pray, Father, for each of us in this room, if we are in that space, give us the sincere heart to ask, God, show me that person, that circumstance that you want to nudge me toward. God, I pray this week that you would reveal that thing that you're calling me to do that's in the spirit of the Good Samaritan. And God, I look forward to the end of the week asking the question, did I see it? And being able to answer in the affirmative, yes, I saw it. And did I do something about it? And responding to the question, yes, I did. And so, God, we're offering our lives to you and the week ahead as a pallet for you to do your work, to nudge each of us towards at least just one thing that you see as a way of showing your love. Make us faithful in that way. And next week, make us accountable. Not to just not to everybody here where we say, yeah, I did it. But to you, Lord. And so that's our prayer as we end, that you would help us to be a church of good Samaritans who see with your eyes and hear with your ears. In Jesus' name. message if you see a neighbor struggling help them
So we, we read in both Matthew and Mark the, the telling of the Lord's Supper, the, the communion, the, the Eucharist, all, all being accurate categories for the, the time of Thanksgiving, uh, time of togetherness and communion. And um, as we now just take a moment, we'll reflect on these and, and we'll pray. Father, as we um, accept your invitation to this table and as we Look over the, the emblems, the, the, the simple, simple emblems from the meal, the, the bread and, and the juice. Just, we ask that you prepare our minds, our bodies to, to receive these. The bread, your body, that was, that was given for us. The juice that, um, your blood from that bloodstained cross as we um, as we reflect on your love for us and as we come to this table and as we take these emblems just ask you for your blessing upon those your grace and your mercy upon us and as we take today's message as we put it into action and we love our neighbors. In your son's name we pray. Amen. to our last song and we sing together. This is uh, Lamentations 3, 22 through 24, where this next song is written out of. And let this rest on your mind and your mind rest on these words. Because of the loving devotion of the Lord, we are not consumed. For his mercies never fail. They are new every morning. And he can't help himself. He says, great is your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. He says this in the deepest part of himself. Therefore, since the Lord is his portion, being faithful in all his ways, sturdy and upright, Therefore, I will hope in him. Can you please stand with us? <laughs> 